Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, Crosspoint. <clears throat> Thanks for joining with us this morning. We are continuing our teaching series called Check Engine, and we have been walking through the book of Amos together. If you have a Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to turn to Amos chapter 5, and uh, we're going to be sticking mostly there this morning. You can follow along uh, in the text. I want to start this morning, but I want to ask you a question. Have you ever seen this word before? We're going to put it up on screen. All right, well, what is that word? Well, the word is phloxa nausa nihilopilification. Phloxa nausa nihilopilification. Uh, it is, in fact, the longest non-technical word in the English language. Yes, it is a real word. And it's not a technical word. It's an actual word. As a matter of fact, it was first used by a man named William Shenstone in 1741. All right, we're going to try this again. I'm going to get you to go along with me. We're going to put it up on the screen. Okay? And here's how you say it. It's phloxa nausa nihilopilification. So, repeat it with me. Phloxa nausa Nihila pilification. Phloxa nausa. Nihila pilification. Phloxa nausa, nihila pilification. Isn't that a great word? Now you might be asking the question, great word, what does it mean? Okay, well, let me tell you. It means to estimate something as worthless or valueless. Phloxa nausa, nihila pilification. So, uh, I, if I think money is valueless, for example, uh, then I have a flux and now nihilopilification about money. Uh, if I think dogs are worthless, and sometimes I do, then I have a flux and now nihilopilification. I might say that of country music as well. So the question is, do you have a flux and now nihilopilification? Is there anything in your life that has very little value for you? Or maybe even this, is there something in your life that you might even say you, you despise? Well, today, as we dive into Amos, we are going to discover one of God's flocks and now and Nihila pilifications. And if you've been with us for this series, you will remember that Amos was a, was a prophet. He lived during the time of what was called the divided kingdom. Amos' story uh, takes place about 150 years into the divided kingdom. Uh, and, and if you remember, uh, the kingdom of Israel was divided into Israel in the north, Judah in the south. But Amos was a shepherd who lived in the south, but God had called him to go to the north to prophesy to the nation of Israel. Uh, so he went, went straight to the city of Bethel, which was the, the religious capital of Israel in the north. And uh, he went there to warn them about God's coming judgment on Israel, and he gives all sorts of different reasons. Uh, but he was saying to them that the Lord was just graciously giving them one last chance to turn things around. But of course, Israel carried on as if nothing was wrong. And see, this was a time for Israel. This was a time of prosperity. This was a time of safety for Israel's leaders. Its borders were secure. Its armies were strong. Money was flowing. Everything was going so well. So when this pesky little prophet shows up, Right? With his words of warning, people don't take him seriously. Uh, in fact, the high priest Amaziah, and you read about this in Amos chapter 7, basically said to him, Amos, go back to Judah. Don't bother us no more. Don't come here to the king's temple and tell us about God's impending doom. But what we discover as we read through Amos is that Israel's 
Prosperity was a thin veneer that actually just covered a long list of problems beneath the surface. I mean, we, we talked about this last week. They worshipped false idols. Um, in many ways, they were just violating the covenant, the covenant that God had made with Israel. So they were prideful. They trusted in their own money and their power to save them. They were like the captain of the Titanic. You remember that? The captain of the Titanic who said, even God himself could not sink this ship. There was corrosion and there was corruption behind the walls of Israel. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of pry back the panel board, and we're going to look at the wood rot and the black mold that was there lurking beneath the surface. And we're going to look at one of them that was actually central to Israel's problems. And what we're going to discover is that this one problem, this one singular problem, was something that absolutely disgusted God. You could say that God had a flocks and nausea, Nahaya pilification about Israel's sin. So let's start at Amos chapter 5, and we're going to start reading uh, from verse 18. Here's what it says. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? So, so these, these introductory verses, it, it's the introducing a, a woe. There are actually three woes in, in the book of Amos. And, and a woe basically is a pronouncement of judgment that's coming. Okay, Pro, the prophets used it a lot. This is the first of three. Um, so, but these verses epitomizes Israel's pride and false security. I mean, they did not fear the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, for them, they just thought it's a day when God's going to come in. And he's going to bring victory to his people, just as he had done in the past. Just as he had done with David, and he had done with Gideon, and so on and so forth. And, and this was retold and rehashed in their stories of Israel all along. So, I mean, they were expecting God is just going to come in on their behalf and just intervene for them on the day of the Lord. And because they felt so secure, they were longing for the day of the Lord. They, they anticipated. They saw it as a day of light and not darkness. And of course, in this context, when it talks about light, uh, it means prosperity and safety as opposed to darkness, which means disaster and destruction. So Israel believed God is fully on our side. It never occurred to them that the Lord was actually on somebody else's side, which we'll look into soon. So Israel's judgment was, it was inevitable. It was inescapable. I mean, it's, he's, Amos, he paints a picture. He says, it's like a hiker. You're out in the woods and you bump into a lion. And you run away from the lion. All of a sudden you hit a bear. And then you run away from the bear. You run home to your cabin. And just as you're fishing for your keys, you get bit by a snake and you die. In the same way, God's judgment is inevitable. It's inescapable. And, and he's coming to judge Israel. This refrain is it's repeated again and again in the prophet's message. To quote Johnny Cash, you can run on for a long time. But sooner or later, Israel... God is going to cut you down. Now the question is, why was God going to cut them down? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 21 says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Hey, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. So here we have it. Flocks and Nausa, Nihilapilification. The Lord looks at the worship of Israel and he esteems it as simply worthless. So, so he's, he's essentially saying, I'm turning my back 
on the religious festivals and the offerings of Israel. Uh, now, you remember, I, I talked about this, is the kingdom of Israel was divided. But at the time of the division, 150 years prior, Jeroboam, the rebellious king in the north, set up his own temples in Israel, in the north. He set one up in Bethel, he set one up in Dan, right? He also set up a golden calf in each one of those temples for the people of Israel to worship. And he did this so that Israel would stop going down to Jerusalem to participate in their religious festivals. Because if they did that, well, the kingdom might be reunited. And no rebellious king wants that to happen. But Jeroboam also duplicated the religious calendar of the South. So they had the same offerings. They had the same festivals. They had the same gatherings and worship. So essentially, the order of worship was the same, but the object of their worship was different. And in the temple system, there were, there were five main offerings that were provided. And in this text here, Amos mentions three of them. And it's interesting. There were the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fellowship offerings. And what's interesting about these offerings is that these were the pleasing aroma offerings to the Lord. In other words, when God, you read about it in Leviticus chapter 1 through chapter 7, is when God received these offerings from Israel, it says it was like, it was like a pleasing aroma in the Lord's nostrils. So these are pleasing aroma offerings. But it's interesting. Notice the sensory language that God is using here. He says, I can't stand the smell of your offerings. I won't even touch them. I can't even look at your peace offerings. And the worship band, it's just noise. I can't even stand to listen to it. So God is completely repulsed by their worship. He hates it, he says. He despises it. Flocks and nows and nihilopilification. You get the point. So what is it about their worship that is so repulsive? Well, the answer is embedded in the next verse. And this is, in fact, the most famous verse that we find in the book of Amos. It's often quoted. Let's read it together. Verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This verse essentially exposes what's been growing behind the panel board of their religious enthusiasm. It says that there's something that they need to start doing. And there's something they need to stop doing. What they need to stop doing is the false worship. But what they need to start is the flood of justice. And what they need to start is the flow of righteousness. And, and this wasn't just supposed to be like some one-off, right? Like a small gesture they might do to ease their conscience. And, and this wasn't supposed to be maybe a trickle, you know, something that they could say, okay, we're kind of doing this. It's just good enough. No, 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 no. The Lord wanted justice to roll down like waters, righteousness to flow like a stream. So the image is unrestricted river, overflowing its banks, <coughs> never, never running dry. So what does he mean by justice? And what does he mean by righteousness? Well, as it turns out, they, they actually have very similar meanings. And, and both are very related to what we would call covenantal faithfulness. Remember, Israel was in a covenant relationship with Yahweh, the living God. And the way that they demonstrated their covenant faithfulness was by keeping the law. So in the law, it talks about justice and, and righteousness. Justice, as it turns out, puts more of an emphasis on the social order, whereas righteousness puts more of an emphasis on the personal or the relational order. But both of them go in hand in hand. I mean, you can't have uh, justice without relationships, and you can't have relationships without justice. They, they go together. But instead of letting them flow, what Israel was doing is they had twisted them. They had corrupted them. Uh, let's, let's look at just a little bit earlier, to, and, and it, it fleshes this out in, in verse 7 of chapter 5. Here's what it says. It says, O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. 
Wormwood in the Middle East was a, a small shrub. It had these gray, hairy leaves. And the, the leaves that you would eat were super, super bitter. Like, bitter as anything you can imagine. So, in the Bible, wormwood often represented bitterness and sorrow. And what Amos seems to be saying here is, is that Israel had turned sweet justice into bitter injustice. And not only that, as for righteousness, they were throwing it to the ground like a piece of garbage. And this is a major theme in Amos. I mean, it's riddled throughout the entire book, almost in every chapter. If you look close enough, you will see injustice after injustice after injustice. Justice was corrupted, righteousness discarded. Uh, if you bring, there's, in the list, there's like horrific exploitation and oppression. Uh, they were selling the poor into slavery. Their legal systems were corrupt. Judges were taking bribes. The police were corrupt. Uh, they overtaxed the down and out. They took advantage of people when they were down. They oppressed the weak, crushed the needy, trampled and neglected the poor. The rich got rarer. Richer, the poor got poorer. Injustice was everywhere, rampant throughout Israel. But here's the thing. They sure could sing. And they all showed up to church on time. And they kept the religious system going like clockwork. And yet it says the Lord couldn't stand their fragrant offerings. If there is anything that could ever possibly cause God to throw up in his mouth... It was the false worship of Israel. See, the problem is, is that true worship should be transformative. True worship should change you. We talked extensively about this last week. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you become like what you worship. What you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or restoration. Psalm 115, verse 8, says this about idol worship. It says, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So you become like the thing you worship, whatever you choose to worship in your life, whatever is most valuable to you, whatever is most important to you, whatever captures your imagination, you become like that thing. If you worship the Lord, you become like him. If you worship idols, you become like your idols. And what is clear throughout scripture is this. God cares for the poor, the weak, and the marginalized. God is for them. God is on their side. Psalm 140, verse 12. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Israel should have known this. I mean, this was actually written into the covenant. It was written into the law of Moses. And then the law actually made justice and righteousness a covenantal responsibility for every Israelite, every member of God's chosen people. Justice and righteousness was their responsibility. They were called to reflect his image to all other nations so that when all the nations would look on the nation of Israel and how they loved each other and cared for each other and cared for the weak and the marginalized, the nations would look at them and say, yes, there is a God. Let us worship him. So, for example, I mean, just coming into the law, uh, it made sure, sure that widows and orphans were protected and provided for. Uh, it made helping the poor everybody's responsibility. Ensured justice for everybody, especially the weak and marginalized. It gave provisions for the disenfranchised to redeem their lost property. It gave restrictions on, on not allowing people to abuse other people. It even helped foreigners who were in the land. This was all scripted, written into the covenant for the people of God. But they were breaking the covenant. But here's the thing is you cannot read the law. You cannot go through the law without concluding that the Lord is on the side of the least of these. So if Israel truly worshiped the Lord, 
then Israel would have become like the Lord. They would have stood up for those who were exploited. They would have created fair systems, judicial systems. Uh, they would have given dignity and compassion to the needy, righting wrongs and, and, and punishing wrongdoers. But they were so very different than the God they worshipped. So their worship, ultimately, it wasn't transformative. They didn't become image bearers of the Almighty King. And for them, it was nothing more, their worship was nothing more than solemn faces and choreography set to loud music. <clears throat> and Israel had become like what they actually worshipped. What they worshipped were false idols. I mean, for one thing, they worshipped the golden calf, which was a symbol of rebellion, ultimate autonomy. You know, I want life on my own terms and not on God's terms. But they also worshipped power. You read this in, in the text. I mean, they, they worship prosperity. They worship their security. And so it's no wonder at the end of the day when they were worshiping all of these things that at the end of the day, they became exploiters and oppressors. They became like what they worshiped. And this thing, uh, this was what was behind their injustice. I mean, if you peel back the layers of any injustice, you, you really peel back and you look what's behind all of the injustice in the world, you will find there somewhere some form of idolatry. Andy Crouch writes about this in, in his book, Playing God. Here's what he says. He says, and I, as idolatry and injustice always go together, injustice requiring idolatry to justify exploitation, idolatry leading to injustice as the idols fail to deliver and demand even greater sacrifices, so with the entrenched cultural patterns we call institutions. There is always a false god lurking behind every system of injustice, the god of nationalism or racism or misogyny, wealth or lust or power itself, which promises godlike abilities to some at the expense of others. And every institution that sustains the worship of a false god ends up neglecting the most vulnerable. Idolatry and injustice always go together. But even after all of this, even after the, the horrific treatment of its people by Israel and its rulers, God was still gracious to them. He still was extending the olive branch and, and giving them an opportunity to repent and turn back to him to make things right. And we find that in Amos chapter 5, verse 14. Here's what it says. It says, seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good. And establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. And you know, we see in these two verses, the two uh, glowing characteristics of God that are found in the book of Amos. On the one hand, God is just. And yet on the other hand, God is also merciful. And what he's saying to Israel is, you know what, Assyria's conquest of your nation, it's not inevitable. But it does require something from me. It requires a full repentance, a full spiritual U-turn away from what's killing you and towards the one who can give you life. Stop doing this. Start doing this. The Lord wants justice to roll down like waters and righteousness to pour out like an ever-flowing stream. Now, some of you might be wondering this morning, isn't this just like some kind of an Old Testament kind of thingy? I mean, like, does this really apply to me? I mean, we're not Israel, right? And uh, we're not under the old covenant. As a matter of fact, we don't live in a theocratic society, right? We're, we are 
in the New Covenant, Christians, living, Gentiles, most of us, maybe some of us Israelites, uh, but we're, uh, we don't live in that. We live in a democratic society with multiple different religions. This is really, does this really apply to me? And, I, and my answer is, well, the covenant may have changed, but God hasn't changed. God is still on the side of the poor, and he's still on the side of the weak and the marginalized. And, and we could go through a whole bunch of examples in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, in the life of Jesus as well as in the life of the church, that could say why we should continue to let justice roll on and righteousness to pour out. But let me just give you one example. James chapter 1, verse 27. Here's what it says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Ooh, lean in. That's important. Wow. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The Lord has not changed. And if we, truly, if we truly worship the Lord, we will seek to become like him. That's what true religion is. I mean, this is, this is made clear in the story of Zacchaeus. You remember the story of Zacchaeus, the short little guy? He's a tax collector, made a lot of money. How did he make his money? He was very rich. Well, he exploited people because he was a tax collector. And he went to see Jesus, find Jesus, and of course Jesus saw him. And he said, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. Listen, I'm going I'm to go to your house today. So Jesus saw him. Jesus invited himself <coughs> into Zacchaeus' life, which was a big no-no in that day. I mean, he, Jesus was a rabbi. Rabbis don't associate with sinners, which Zacchaeus was. He was an outcast in his community. And yet Jesus went to his house and he ate with him. And when Zacchaeus encountered Jesus, the Son of God, it radically transformed Zacchaeus' life. Let's look at what it says happened to Zacchaeus. Verse 19. This is at the end of the meal. Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zach met Jesus and he walked away transformed. He had a conversion in his heart, but it didn't stay in his heart. It led to his, his social world, his relational world being transformed. Justice, righteousness. Jesus welcomes exploiters. Hey, listen, we're all exploiters in some way. Jesus welcomes us. He says, come. He welcomes exploiters, but he transforms us into agents of change. Now, I want to be honest with you, Crosspoint. I mean, this, this, this message this week, preparing for it, it's been super convicting for me. Um, it's made my soul ache. I, I had trouble writing it. I had a lot of trouble writing it. And it's raised a lot more questions in my mind than answers. You know, lately, there have been a whole lot of churches fighting to open their doors so that they can worship together. And, and, you know, some of them, we know they've made it more of a politics and it's been polarizing and they've been less than gracious in their fight. And I'm not against us gathering together again in person. But let me ask you a question. Why do we protest about reopening our doors, but we are so silent about injustice, exploitation, racism, and poverty? Why is it that when you look at the social media accounts of churches, including Crosspoint, that most of our posts are about our worship gatherings? Why is it that we're not posting about things that break God's heart? In these past few weeks, most of you have become familiar with some household names. Ahmed Arbery, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor. And the stories and the videos and the images of these horrendous acts of racism are heartbreaking. And they break God's heart. And they should break our heart as well. Why do churches speak so little about racism? Or why do they only speak about racism when it becomes popular in the media? Or even closer to home, I mean, there are, there are 300, over 300 
indigenous women in Canada who've been murdered or gone missing in the past several decades. They have no videos showing that they're missing. There's no posts making it popular. They just disappeared in silence. I mean, just this past week, the federal government in Canada again delayed its action plan on this issue, which has been deemed a genocide. What are we doing about justice for First Nations and Indigenous women in Canada? Why are devout followers of Jesus less disposed to social justice? And when they do get involved, why are they written off as leftists? I mean, why do we have to politicize or polarize when it comes to social justice? Let me tell you a true fact. God is not on the left and God is not on the right. But God is on the side of the poor and the marginalized. Again, I have questions, but I have very few answers. And I don't know about you, but I want to become the kind of person who loves and lives like Jesus. I want to worship him in spirit and truth so that when I worship him, I walk away and I'm truly transformed, becoming like him. I want to love what he loves and I want to hate what he hates. But if I don't care about injustice or exploitation or racism or poverty, what does that reveal about my worship? What does that reveal about who I'm truly worshiping? I, I also long for Crosspoint, for us to be the kind of people who worship Jesus with authentic hearts and then walk away transformed so, so that it changes our character and it transforms our lives, not just our values, but how we actually care about the world. So it spills over into our relationships. From there, it spills over into our communities. So the justice rolls down like a river. And righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. And you know, I, I, see, I see the image of God's justice and righteousness reflected in so many of you. Because I know you, because I know your stories, and I know what you're for. And you know, it's those of you who have given up your Saturday nights to serve in this Salvation Army van. And showing dignity and compassion to street workers. I mean, those of you who give your time to the Mustard Seed and Hope Mission and Building Hope and other organizations. Those of you who have chosen to live sim simple lives so that you can dedicate your money towards helping those overseas. Um, those of you who love your neighbors, who protect the weak, who help addicts and come alongside them. I mean, that could go on and on and on. And let me just say the water of justice is running through our community. And my hope and prayer is that we will just open the dam and let the torrent of justice and righteousness pour out. You know, if you've been with Crosspoint for a while, you know that uh, we long to be a church that is for the city. We haven't arrived yet. We're still on our way there. And this is, this is terminology that is for the city that's borrowed from the pastors Darren Patrick and Matt Carter. We want to be for the city. See, there are lots of churches that are just in the city. In other words, they create nice, safe programs for the people inside their church walls. Uh, they never occasionally do they ever go outside they aren't effectively engaged with the people or the culture of their city. They're just in the city. And, and then there are other churches that are, that are against the city. They've kind of adopted this defensive posture. They see the surrounding culture as always as bad, always as irredeemable, always as against them. The arts, the business, the media, the minions of Satan that are out to get us, destroying the church. It's kind of an us versus them. They're against the city. But then there are churches that are churches of the city. And this is kind of like the opposite extreme. So they've capitulated to the culture. They, they fully embraced the culture of the city. So you can't actually even tell the difference between the church and the culture. They've lost their distinct identity. And because of that, they've lost their witness. Those are churches of the city. 
But we want to be a church for the city. And this means that we're, we're not afraid to uphold a biblical worldview and moral standards, and we believe the gospel, and we live by the gospel, and we love the gospel. And we'll proclaim the truth of Scripture with clarity and with passion. But at the same time, we are committed to bringing God's peace and justice and flourishing to our city. That's the kind of people we want to be. We want to be on God's side in his posture towards the city. There are so many ways that we can do this and so many ways we've tried to do this and we're still growing in this and we're still learning it. But this morning, I just want to share, you, share with you, and I'm going to get really practical here, one way that we're going to try and be a church that's for the city. We want to partner with God in his redemptive mission in the world. A number of you have heard of uh, Mosaic Center. Uh, Mosaic Center is an organization here in, in Northeast Edmonton. Uh, they love Jesus. They serve Jesus. They've just uh, recently amalgamated with the mustard seed. And we've done a lot of projects with Mosaic Center in the past. Well, Mosaic Center is, is being moved out of their current facility, and they have to move into a new facility. And actually, this is going to be a better facility for them so they'll be able to help more people and do more social good. And uh, just this week, um, I had a chance to uh, interview via Zoom, and you know how well that sometimes goes, but via Zoom, uh, I've interviewed uh, two of the um, key people, and I'm going to introduce them to you in this video. And so it's about nine minutes, and I ask them about what's going on with the Mosaic Center, and I talk about how we, as the people of God, might partner with God in his redemptive mission in the world. So let's, let's join in uh, this conversation and, and watch it together. Well, hey, Crosspoint, uh, I'm so glad to have with us today uh, Megan Shearing, who's the Director of Community Development with the Mustard Seed and one of the founding directors of the Mosaic Centre. And of course, you know uh, Dean Kerperwaite, who is the Executive Director of the Mustard Seed here in Edmonton. And they're here and they're going to talk to us about the Mosaic Centre. So guys, why don't you say hello and we'll say hello to you. Hi, everybody. Hi, thanks for having us. Um, so I want to ask you guys some questions about uh, just the interesting developments of what's been happening with the Mosaic Center uh, here in Northeast Edmonton. And uh, I'll throw this one out first to you, Megan. Why don't you tell us about uh, how the Mosaic Center is currently uh, serving Northeast Edmonton? Maybe give us an example of that and tell us a little bit about that. For sure. So um, we were on Fort Road and 65th Street, as many of you know, and um, we've moved now to, and we have a space, um, and 65th Street and 132nd Avenue, and we're renewing that and hoping to get that underway. Um, Mosaic has served the community in many ways. We've served the community historically with uh, people experiencing poverty and homelessness, and we've also helped people with whatever needs when they came in the door, kind of a one-stop shop. As we are moving into a time of COVID, or as we are in a time of COVID, we've had to change things, and we have decided how do we serve our folks that have issues with food security. So we started, the current biggest project we have going on right now is called Dinner to Door. And we deliver frozen meals, three frozen meals each week to families uh, all over Edmonton. But uh, a lot of kids who are in school in Northeast Edmonton or who were in school and depended on school for their, a couple of their meals a day are really feeling the effects of this in, in many ways that some of us aren't. Oh, great to hear. And of course, Crosspoint, uh, many of you have served with Mosaic Center in the past uh, in their uh, location there on uh, Fort Road and uh, so this transition is is going to be happening and they're moving into a new facility 
Uh, Megan, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, why, why is this change happening? Why are you moving to the new facility? Well, we were in our building for almost uh, 10 years, but the building is being sold by the, the leaseholder or the, the owners. And we, it is also in not great condition. So we knew that we had to be out by a certain date, by April 30th was our date that we had to leave. So we started looking in different areas. And, you know, we, we tried a lot of different areas, but God shut all those doors and this one opened and it's been a lot of work to get here, but it's meant to be. So that's, we have a 10-year lease signed, and we have three empty bays that we have to turn into a new mosaic center. <laughs> wow, it sounds like a big, uh, a big operation. Uh, I wonder, Dean, could you tell us a little bit, why, why, are, you, why are you moving into this new space, and what's, what's the benefit of that? Sure, yeah. So, um, you know, the Mosaic Center was on its own as its own agency for about eight years and merged with the mustard seed about three years ago. And when that happened, we actually almost immediately started talking about uh, we could use a different space. Uh, the old building was pretty great. We could use some more space. We'd like a commercial kitchen. And uh, we'd probably like to see if we could do some more food uh, programming around food, especially on the development side. And so um, it took a while to find this place, but the, the Middle Bay actually was an old pizza place called Roadrunner's Pizza. And so that provided us a commercial kitchen. It's double the space of the old Mosaic Center. And then it's also in a neighborhood that really is um, got a lot of families and uh, people that are just kind of living on the margins financially. And we really wanted to get involved in more family um, style of programming here in Edmonton. And so the location really allows us to do that, to kind of change our focus from mostly kind of a drop-in um, style of uh, programming to something that's more community focus, more community development focus, and can really focus on the families and the kids and the youth that are in that area. Uh, what's going to be the cost of the change? Uh, well, the cost that we've estimated is approximately $150,000, um, and that's from from bare bones to fully operational. Well, Crosspoint, uh, you know that uh, the reason why we launched in Northeast Edmonton is we wanted to plant the kingdom in an area of great need uh, in the city. Uh, so there are lots of places we could have planted and opened up a new church, but we knew that God was calling us to, to be the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus in Northeast Edmonton, to be the people of God, called by God, sent on his mission in the world and so that's why organizations like uh, Mosaic Center and Mustard Seed and Hope Mission and, and all of these other organizations we have supported uh, in the past. Before we were going to support Mustard Seed in their opening of their boutique shop on 118th Ave but after I communicated with Dean uh, regarding what's the greatest need in this time just coming out of COVID uh, and during COVID uh, we decided it was time to pivot. It was probably makes more sense for us to pivot the project and direct our resources towards this project rather than towards the boutique. So what our board of elders has decided to do is to, um, to close the project towards the Mustard Seed Boutique and to open up a new project, which is the Mosaic Center Development. And we're going to enter into this project with the exact same uh, parameters as the other project that we're in. In other words, we want to invite you to give generously to this project uh, to partner with God in his redemptive mission in the world to do social good. And, uh, and if you contribute a dollar towards this project, Crosspoint is going to match you a dollar. And so we're going to do matching donations up to $5,000 towards this project. So that means if you could donate in total $5,000, that will mean $10,000 that we can give towards this project. And of course, we can give above and beyond that, and I hope we do. What a great time for us to do that. Uh, we're also going to have a minimum set on all of this. 
so that we will, by minimum, give $2,000 uh, towards this project. Now, the matching funds are going to come out of our local fund, which, of course, is designated for projects like these uh, towards local community uh, needs that uh, are around us in Northeast Edmonton. So that's the challenge. Crosspoint is for you to join with us in uh, sponsoring this project. So I'm going to turn it over to you guys. I'm going to give you a chance to maybe give some last words to a church like Crosspoint, who's seeking to uh, follow God in his redemptive mission in the world. So Megan, we'll start with you. I would say um, <clears throat> one of my mentors uh, said to me, people will know you are Christians by your love. And uh, that was really evident one day when um, this group of gang members came in and the police had said to us, don't let them in, they're bad. Like, it's nothing but trouble. And we said, well, they've never caused us trouble here yet. So they're welcome until something happens. So they came in and they sat down, they had coffee and hung out with us. And uh, the one gang member said, you know, there's something different about this place. And he said, if there had been a place like this, if my mom was still alive, this is how it would be. And this is that place for me. And to me, right then and there, that was being the hands and feet of Jesus. They could feel there's a difference. They knew there was a difference. They felt welcomed. Doesn't matter how many tattooed tears you have on your face or where you've come from or what you've done, but there's a, there's a place of second, third, and hundredth chances. So that's, that's the real reason we do what we do. Mm, that's awesome. That's great. Uh, Dean, how about you? Very little to add to what Megan said, other than, you know, one of the things I love about Crosspoint and the reasons why I um, love preaching there is because I, I know there's um, already a community between the culture of Crosspoint and the culture of the mustard seed, um, meaning that we understand that life is always better with Jesus. And we also understand that um, part of having Christ in us is to demonstrate um, Christ in us to those that we come in contact with. And so as you as a church continue to live out um, in a way that's so missionally focused and so outwardly focused, part of that is um, in the work we do too, in helping those that maybe are not in a position right now to help themselves. And so, um, you know, you coming alongside us in this is, is just great encouragement to our work. Uh, you know, we, we you know, the, the finances is, is wonderful and we certainly appreciate that. But that, that spirit of partnership <laughs> Knowing that a church sees value in what we're doing, and more importantly, sees value in those that no one else sees value in, is uh, incredibly significant to us. So um, thank you for helping us love the people that many people are choosing not to love. And uh, we promise you that we will love them in a way that not only honors your generosity, but honors Christ. Fantastic. And of course, uh, as Mosaic Center begins to open after COVID is... Uh, kind of moved past us, there will be opportunities for people to come in and to serve as well and to partner with you in, in very tangible ways as well, in addition Absolutely. to their giving. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Fantastic. Guys, thanks for taking the time today. Bless you both in the work you're doing. And uh, we will be in touch uh, not too far in the future. Well, just to, uh, just to provide a little bit of a clarification for those of you wondering, how do I give to this project? Uh, you can go give online through any of our online systems and you can just, there's an option on the drop-down menu to just designate um, giving to uh, the Mosaic Center development. Um, so thank you for those of you who want to give in this way. Listen, there is uh, so much that we can do 
and sometimes you feel overwhelmed by all the possibilities that are out there of the things that you can do. It's, it's called paralysis by analysis. And so there's so many options that you end up doing nothing. Let me just say this. You cannot do everything, but you can do something. And let me ask you, what is the something that God is calling you to do? Crossway, let me ask you, is your worship transformative? What does your compassion and solidarity and social good say about your worship? And my prayer for all of us, and, and especially for myself, you got to hear this. I'm, I'm praying for myself. May justice roll like mighty waters and may rush, righteousness flood our banks so that we are transformed to become more and more like our just and merciful King of Kings. Well, would you, would you join with me in prayer? Can we pray together? Father, thank you that you are so good and you're righteous and you're holy and you live in unapproachable light. But because of Jesus and through his sacrifice on the cross, we can come to you and we can know you and we can be in relationship with you. And because of that, we can receive mercy. So you are a just God, but you're also a merciful God. We thank you for that. And thank you, God, that you take exploiters and um, you transform them into world changers and agents. And God, we want to be like you. We want to be on your side. Help us to do that. Help us to know what that looks like for each and every one of us. We can't do everything, but we can do something. What is the something, God, that you're asking us to do? Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. And give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.